0: Happy Work, Happier Life, episode 26. Thomas here from Happier with Daniel Hagos, Managing Director of Marsis. Today we discussed his career journey from client success into managing director, what client success actually entails, and tips and advice for those who want to better manage your personal time, your work-life balance, and also finding a mentor. So if you're interested, tune in for this podcast.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Can you quickly introduce yourself for those who don't know who you are? Okay, so my name is Daniel Hagos. I'm the Managing Director for Greater China and Southeast Asia at EMASIS. So, I mean, first off, to start out, can you share a bit about your career journey, how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I was at university, I I think a lot of people do think that like getting onto a grad scheme is the most important thing in the world. And I remember thinking that You know, there were only. I was in London. I was thinking that there were only like these thirty companies that existed. It was like IBM, HP, um, you know, Apple. It was just you know, you just think you have to go into a grad scheme. So I started with that. Um, Quite early on in my grad scheme, I didn't really like it uh, because it was a big, big organization. It wasn't really a fit for what I wanted to do. I was lucky because I had a really good mentor and. He encouraged me to look at, I was working at HP actually, and he encouraged me to look at different options within HP. Um, so, one of the thing, the most important steps was actually quitting my grad scheme, which I did probably about 10 months in, and then stayed within HP but moved to Scotland for a year because eventually I wanted to move into a sales role. Wow. Um, <laughs> which is a bit, I mean, not many people within, you know, there's like 20,000 people that apply, 20 people get in. Um, so to quit the grad scheme when you're like 21, I think everyone thought I was insane. Actually, um, <laughs> but my mentor gave me really good advice, and he said, "Look, actually, you can stay in London, you can do training, or you could go and get real work experience within this, you know, within the company, but in another division." So I did that for a year, um, and then eventually found a masters because you know I moved back to London and I was looking for a new role, um, and I knew I didn't really love working for a huge organization, especially when you're trying to, I think, start your career, because like, for example, I wanted to move to a sales role and they said, okay, it's going to take you five years or 10 years. I was like, you know, I was really, I was ambitious, but also probably a bit impatient and hot-headed. So I was like, no, I'm not going to wait 10 years. Um, Managed to get the experience. And then a master's was a great step because it was a small company, fast growing. Um, It was really different to what I think I initially expected when I was at university. But great at the time, it was great actually for starting your career and being able to develop. Mm. Um, So I think quitting the grad scheme was a really important step. It sounds negative, I think, to quit. um, But I think it was just quite early on realizing this isn't really what I wanted to do. And I wanted to do something different and going down a different pathway. But yeah, then I was in a master's in London for about five years. I moved into like a sales director role. Um, and then I had the opportunity to move to Hong Kong because, um, we were setting up client success, um, which is kind of like a more advanced and evolved type of account management, um, across Asia Pacific. So I moved out to launch that and, uh, yeah, and I've been in Hong Kong for the last six years or so now. Um, been at Amasis throughout. I did have a year where I left Emasis, went to Palo IT, uh, and then rejoined Amasis about 18 months ago.
0: Oh, wow. So,
1: Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs>
0: no, 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 that's great. I Before I dive into client success, I want to really talk about that. Um, but real quick, one, are you allowed to quit grad management trainee programs? Is that, what's,
1: what's the process like for that? So I think you, I mean, in my case, definitely. Um, I think it depends. I imagine that there's some companies where they sponsor things for you. So they sponsor like your master's or they sponsor part of your degree. But my one was, you know, we graduated applied for the job, got the job, that was it. I was just, you know, I was an employee, so um, I could. But I remember my manager at the time was quite stunned um, because no one really, most people at least after joining a grad scheme stay for probably two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was quite surprised that, one, I kind of had the courage or even the curiosity to do it, but also she was surprised like, to find out that actually I had explored outside of the sort of grad bubble that you grow up within. But yeah, I mean, you definitely can. I didn't get sued or anything like (laughs) that. (laughs) Good to know, but I guess everyone else should really read their terms and conditions before. I would definitely advise, yeah, reading your terms and conditions.
0: And then second question is, you mentioned you were at Palo IT for a bit. What was that transition like? And um, is it common for people to leave a company and then come back? And is that looked down upon or is it more accepted than people think? I think,
1: you know, when I joined a masters, we had a hundred people and now we're close to a thousand and a lot of people have been at the company for quite a long time. I do think there's a, there's a handful of people who have left and then, you know, after a year or so, there's been a new opportunity. They have kept in touch, in touch with the company and come back. We actually had someone in Hong Kong who left two years ago and she recently rejoined. So I think most people join like the way of working, like the culture. And then keep in touch after they leave, and they usually you know, leave on good terms. So then, if in the future they want to come back, there's an opportunity to. So I'd, I'd say it's quite common, and it's. I mean, it's, it seems positive. I think it's a nice thing when that happens in an organisation. It shows that your working relationship was good enough that you actually want somebody to come back and work with you again, and they want to as well. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it. I think it went well. And it's quite common here. And do you
0: think it helps people to get? The diverse experience outside of the company, bringing new perspectives. Do you think it helped you mm. get to management or
1: managing director? I think it did help. Emas is a very, very supportive of internal promotions, um, and I do think that for me, going outside and getting external knowledge and experience definitely helped because I could come in, come into this role with slightly like fresh eyes. It wasn't. If you're if you're moving in an internal role, I think one of the challenges is that you you kind of keep your previous role with you. So in a way, I almost like cleared my plate, went to Palo, learned a completely different way of working, which was which was amazing. And then when I came back to Marsis, I had new experience and I'd grown mm-hmm. up here, so it was good to go elsewhere, come back, and to see something a bit different.
0: How did you jump from client success to managing director?
1: I'm sure a lot of people that see your LinkedIn have this question on top of their mind so in client success i was managing a team across asia pacific so i already had you know the, the experience of managing a team um in a master system managing director role covers client success which is all sort of like managing existing business and then it covers new business sales so i'd already covered both of those areas but just independently and then i think what i learned a lot at palo was it's not just about sales. It's not just about managing your clients. It's so HR centric. And so much of it is about people and about managing people and making sure that everybody's okay and making sure that everything's working. And Palo is such, because it's a technology consulting business, it's so people centric because your entire, I don't want to say your business is people because it doesn't sound nice, but you know your your business is, is your staff, like it's your people. And if people are unhappy, if people are not getting what they want out of it, then your business doesn't work. Um, if all of your developers one day decided they want to leave, you don't have a business anymore. So naturally, you're going to be thinking really strongly about people. And and the HR was such a strong part, a strong core of the business, which I hadn't really seen before. So Palo was a fantastic step because that was one area that I didn't really have that much experience of, which is operations and you know how do you actually work with people, manage manage people, make sure that they feel connected to the organization that they're part of. Um, So Palo was, yeah, I think Palo was a key step. And that's what I think made me come back and was this combination of, I knew how to do new business, I knew how to manage existing business, but also then I had the experience of actually running an operation and running a big team.
0: And speaking of people, I definitely agree, they make up the business.
1: Um, What's the culture like in MRSIS? I think the culture is quite... It's quite flat. I think it's. I know. All, I mean, all organisations say that, right? <laughs> but um, it's very easy to. If you wanted to speak to the CEO, you could send him a Slack message and you could have a call with him. If you wanted to find out about somebody was in the UK was managing this client and you're managing a similar business and you wanted to find out what's going on in the account, what type of campaigns are they doing, what's their marketing strategy look like, you could send a message to someone, have a call with them, fairly easily. So. The company is very, very supportive um, and quite flat. It's not a very hierarchical company. It's, it's very easy to what, speak to senior people, and but it's a very global business. I mean, that's obviously changed with COVID. It still is very global, um, but there's always been this big connection between what's going on in Europe, what's going on in the US, and what's going on here. Um, it's quite quick. Like The pace of, of work is quite quick. Um, And it does still feel like a startup. It does still feel very agile, very quick in how it works Um, and very customer-centric, I'd say. And
0: what kind of person does it take to join the team? Like if you're looking for people to join your team,
1: what what do you look for? You have to be a self-starter. Like you have to, there's not, there's still not the book. There's not a, you know when you come in this is the book if you read the book you can do your job like that still doesn't exist there we've got a lot better at how we do training and how we've built um kind of internal knowledge banks um so there's a lot of places where you can go for information but there is still this element that you have to seek it you still have to you still have to go and actually get that information you have to be driven um so I'd say you have to be you have to be curious. Um, there are a lot of technology companies where you come in, you do your induction, you go to San Francisco, you learn about how everything works, you come back, you now know the way, you've learned, <laughs> you know, you've had your eyes open um, and been slightly brainwashed, and now you're good to go. We're not that organization. I think there's still there's still that flexibility of coming in, learning what we do, what we do well, but then you have to ex- ex- execute on it yourself. So I'd say people have to be driven, they have to be curious. Um, and... They they do have to be innovative. They have to think about how to work around a, a problem, how they're going to drive towards a solution as well.
0: Okay, um, now I want to jump into client success. Mm. I think it's a topic that not many people not many people touch on. Mm. Um, first off,
1: what exactly is client success? So, client success um, is in a way a more evolved version of account management. Um, client success started actually from Salesforce. They were the first to almost like coin and to launch the phrase. The idea with client success is that it's very much centered for SaaS companies for software businesses. And it's making sure that your clients get value from the technology that they've purchased. So the the objective and if you think of the process, there's there's a sales process, the client's pitched, you know, technology can do X, Y, and Z. Um, the objective is that once the client starts using the technology, they're getting the most value from it so all of the use cases that they want to run are actually implemented and it's really about value and about adoption it's making sure that it's not just they buy technology and they don't really use it it's really making sure that they're adopted and the objective really is that by the end of the first contract which could be 12 months it could be 24 months the client's fully adopted and they're actually able to grow so they're not at the end of 12 months and saying. We didn't use this this this. We you know, we were promised all of these features in the sales process. We didn't use any of them. You know, it's making sure that they're actually I like to think of it as the dream that they were sold during the sales process actually becomes a reality. It's not just that, oh that sales guy came in, in the suit and they told us they can do all of these amazing things and we've only done two of them. You know, it's making sure that they get actually what they expected. And they're happy and they're coming back. They're happy, they're satisfied, they're advocates, etc.
0: What's the difference or maybe they're the same thing between customer
1: service or customer support and client success? It's a good question. Um customer support is usually very issue-based. It's usually when something's gone wrong. So there's a bug, how can we fix it? We've had a problem with this. It's very it's slightly more I'd say black and white. It's how do we solve this exact issue? And I'd also say it's very it's very reactive. The nature of technical support or customer support is that it's reactive from our side. So the client has an issue, they raise a ticket or they call us, we resolve it. The problem solved, we move on. Client success is a lot more proactive. We have to be going to our clients and saying, you know, I've noticed that you're not doing this. This is what you should be doing. This is what businesses in your industry are doing. It's very much around us driving the conversation to them.
0: And what sort of job roles are there in the field of client success?
1: So there's there's client success, which, you know, as I said, a client success manager, and then there's all different areas within that. So there's like a client success success executive, uh, team lead, director, you know, different layers around that. Um, One area that we've launched recently is a technical adoption specialist, which the client success manager is responsible for guiding the client on what they should be doing, but fundamentally the client has to do it. So it's us having to work with them and say, you should launch these campaigns. We've trained you on doing this. This is how you should be doing it. The client's the one that actually has to execute and do it within the platform. We we do have a technical adoption specialist and they work a lot more closely with the client. And in a way, it's almost as if they're sat next to each other and doing it on, you know, building campaigns, building programs in the life in the system next to them as well. Those are probably the two key roles I'd I'd highlight. And how do you get into these
0: two key roles? I mean, is there a degree that's like, Mm. let's study
1: client success or, yeah. Not really. If I think of the background from the staff that we have, things like business studies, marketing obviously helps, right? Because we're a marketing company. Um, Business studies, if anybody's worked in agencies, that helps. Um, You don't have to be the most technical. You know, you don't have to have a very you don't have to be a programmer or anything like that. But generally it's you should be comfortable working with customers. You should be comfortable to be in a client-facing position, I'd say.
0: Do you have any people from the hospitality background?
1: I I imagine that has some overlap. It's interesting. I don't think that we have anyone directly from hospitality, but we definitely have a lot of people who have You know, worked in bars, worked in restaurants, worked as waiters. I I used to work in a restaurant. I used to run a restaurant actually with my mom, um, which was a lot of fun. But a lot of people I think who had that waiter, waitress type of background, I think. I was also
0: a bartender and waiter back in the day. (laughs) Um, Is it a hard role to get into if you haven't studied any of these? Like can someone transition into client success from maybe a tech role or Mm, business role?
1: Yeah, definitely. For sure. Uh, we have a lot of people who have transitioned from from other roles, and I think it helps. I think if you if you have if you if you like working with clients, and you have a tech background or a more commercial background or a more strategic or creative background, then I think you could easily step into client success. It just means that you have to have that ability to be in customer facing, client facing situations, but you have that background that you can translate into it.
0: And how can one prepare and demonstrate that they're they're ready for this client facing role? Like, say, someone who doesn't have any experience mm. in client facing roles, um, and they wanted to jump into this career. What what are the necessary steps to pivot or reskill to prepare for the career change?
1: I I think it depends on the organization that you're working for. Because, let's say, for example, if Um, You work for a company that sells hotel software. If you have that background, it's very easy for you to translate into working for in client success for a hotel software company because your clients are hoteliers. You're going to them and saying, I understand your business. I understand your industry. This is how this software is relevant for you. So I think it really does depend on the organization you're going into a lot of our clients are retailers. So if we had somebody from a retail background, they would very easily step into a client success role because they have that knowledge. So client success is really, really broad and there's millions of software companies now. So it just really depends on, on which one you'd be going into. And for the startups
0: listening and maybe managers building their small teams, do you have any advice for them when they're trying to develop and grow their, or even launch their client success teams?
1: I think it's important to understand what good looks like. So, what does a good client of yours look like? What does that actually mean, and what, how are they using your technology, and what is it that you, what does I won't say perfection, but what does good look like? And I think if you can understand what good looks like and what you want your clients to do, you can work backwards from there, and then think around how do you actually embed that into your training, into how you you do kickoff meetings, how you do weekly catch-ups or quarterly business reviews, but I would work backwards from what does good look like and then really just instill that into all the conversations that you're having with your clients.
0: All right. And um, I mean, jumping back a bit, you were talking about people, people make the team, they make the Mm -hmm. business, the culture is really important. And I think one part of maintaining and growing your culture is putting the staff and employees first And I mean, given COVID-19, everything, are there things you're doing as a company to protect and
1: promote mental health, mental well-being in the team? So firstly, I think we've been very flexible when it comes to working from home. So Hong Kong has been a bit tricky, right? Because there's been a lot of yo-yoing, like, you know, we've been back to the office, then we're back at home. and, And we've probably, I think, since the end or towards the end of last year, just said to our employees, like, just work from home do what you like, You know, be as flexible as, as you want. One thing we have encouraged is for departments to be coming into the office one day per week just to have that face-to-face interaction. We've kept the office open as well. So for some people who don't like working from home or don't have enough space or for whatever reason don't want to work from home, they can as well, which I think has really helped. Um, we've tried to be more respectful with time as well. So try not to have too many meetings, although I think it's it's a challenge. Um, very much encouraging people to say no as well. So saying, saying to people, you can say no if you, I don't know, you have a cinema date with your partner or you have something else going on. You can say no, you can push back. So people don't feel like they have to join every single meeting. Um, I think those have probably been the key things. But the, the, the balance, I think, between working work and you know your personal life that's a really difficult one to, to do because sometimes something does come up and you might need to work late. So the only way that that balance actually works is if you get feedback from people where they say, look, actually that evening, I can't do it. I know, it's in, I know this is important, but I need to do this. You know Something else has come up. Trying to have that open communication, um, it's something I really encourage. And I think that's actually helped to, to have that balance slightly better.
0: How do you maintain your personal work-life
1: balance? I think I'm pretty good at saying no. Our headquarters is in Europe, so it's very easy for us to have late calls. They're quite respectful, I think, of time, but I just try to be a bit strict about when I finish work. I try to just make sure that I don't have late calls unless I absolutely need to. One thing that I learned really early on is that there's always going to be more work. So you could stay until midnight. You could stay until three o'clock in the morning. There's always going to be more to do. So I think time management and really trying to say, What's urgent what do I absolutely have to do today and what can wait until tomorrow um, is something that I think is really important to encourage in all of our teams it's something that I do every day as well
0: and do you do anything to maintain or promote your own mental health is there any do you go for runs do you meditate what sort of things do you do to to make
1: sure you're in the right space one thing which is not as cool as all of those things, although those things are interesting. um, I think having a to-do list is really important. I feel like it's, I don't know if everybody's doing it, but the first thing I do um, when I I take the ferry to work is I look at my list, I write a to-do list and just make sure that I prioritize my day. I always put way too many things on my to-do list. So throughout the day, I kind of push more things towards tomorrow. I push them towards other dates as well. So for me, I find that incredibly relaxing because it just means I can come in relatively fresh. I don't work often on weekends, um, which, you know, I don't do that Monday, uh, Sunday night, grab your laptop, go through emails. I don't do that. I'd rather wake up early on Monday morning. So I think having as much as humanly possible, I try not to work on weekends. And I try to be quite strict about that. Other things, exercise is obviously important. So I like going for a run, I do like doing yoga, although I'm not as good as I used to be, which is sad. But then, I mean, I have some bad habits. So for example, lunch, I'm very bad at, at how I am with lunch. I just go grab a salad, come back, eat it quickly. So that's probably not as positive, but at least I try to get out of the office if I'm going to grab something. But I think exercise is a really important one, but it's difficult because there's someone could send you a message and say, hey, can we have a call now? And you think, okay, I want to go for a run. And I think it's just setting the expectations, saying, can I call you in an hour? Can I call you in 45 minutes? Is it urgent? Can we speak tomorrow morning? It's really easy to do. It's, it's difficult in the beginning to do that. But as soon as you start doing that, I do find that people are slightly more, they're respectful and they say, yeah, fine. Actually, it's not important. We can speak tomorrow. So for me, I find that very difficult, not difficult. I find that very important to do because a lot of my job is speaking to people. And it's very easy to just get a Slack message and just jump onto a call, you know, whatever time of day someone asks.
0: I mean, as an MD and maybe for other MDs out there, I feel like some people feel obliged to work on the weekends and overtime. Do you see that as the case with
1: maybe other MDs of similar sized companies? I think it depends on the organization and and where the organization is and what stage it's at. For me, I feel like it gets back to the real understanding of what's urgent, what's essential. Urgent's not the right word because urgent suggests you know something's on fire. And if something's on fire, then you need to fix it. But it's saying what's important and, and how to best prepare yourself for for the coming week. So for me, I've, I feel like if I end my Friday well, then my Monday starts relatively well as long as I have a to-do list and I organize myself. I do think that c- certain organizations that are in big growth phase, you, you need to work, you need to work at all hours. But part of me, the devil on my shoulder just says, is it necessary? Like, is it, is it 100% important? Because I, I remember when I first moved to Hong Kong, I used to work ridiculous hours. But I did it because I remember feeling better for it. I remember going home and thinking, I did it, like I've done more. Did I achieve more? Would it have been better if I went home and rested and just had some space to, to think about work? I think it could have been, but I just feel like often it's scratching an itch and it's a, an indulgence more than anything else. Like sometimes it's nice to just go through your emails on Sunday nights and you're mentally prepared for Monday morning. But is it, I guess my question is, is it 100% necessary? And if it isn't, then why don't you just have a nice Sunday? Right.
0: And then from the other side for employees, mm. um, Maybe they're new to the team or they're more juniors. They feel obligated as well to mm, yeah, yeah. So how do you, how can they manage that? Like, how can they manage up?
1: Firstly, I think it's about setting the expectation. So for me, especially when I first moved to Hong Kong in, in London, there's not a culture of you stay on to your boss stays unless you're in like banking or anything like that. Right. Um, and, what we did quite early on was actually say to people during the interview process and say, if you're, if you're brand new in your job here and you're working until 10 PM at night, I don't think it's good. I would actually be concerned. So I'm not going to give you a pat on the back and say, oh, well done. You know, that guy's really going for it. After a while, it's concerning. So if you can do all of your work between nine and six and you're doing a good job, that's awesome. So really encouraging people that overtime isn't a good thing. It's actually potentially concerning because it means you can't do your work within the office hours or you've got too much work on. And then I think for that that's a great way I think to start because then at least it encourages your staff that it's not something that looks good or that it's encouraged. And then I think it gets them right onto the pathway of being able to push back, being able to say, actually that doesn't work for me. This is, you know, this is a schedule that works best for them. But I think it really starts from actually probably the interview process and then onboarding and everything else from there. Do
0: you have tips for the, the staff or employees themselves when they're discussing with uh, maybe their managers who maybe actually expect them to work overtime? Like if you are in their shoes mm. and everyone else around you is working overtime or your mm. boss is staying late, what are some things they can
1: do to sort of set the expectation, especially if it's already been a while and they want to change the expectation. It's really difficult because it's company culture and, and it's, You know, if you're new in a job and you're in an environment where that's the company culture, I think it's really hard to fight against the tide. And the thought that I have, but I think it's slightly wishful thinking, (laughs) perhaps not to be too negative, is it would be great if you could go to your boss and say, I'm doing X, Y, I'm doing everything. I think I'm doing a good job. I don't think I need to stay extra hours because to show face or, or for whatever reason, on the reverse, if you've got too much work on, you should really be able to go to your boss and say, or go to your manager, I should say, boss isn't the right word, but go to your manager and say, this is too much. This is really interrupting on my work, on my personal life, and should be able to to have that conversation. We've had it from some people, even recently, actually. I had um, a colleague of mine said, because of you know some changes internally, he said, my workload really increased, which has meant that, there's a few things that I'm not really going to be able to do as much There's some meetings, which I can't attend, but well, I think we're fortunate because of the environment that we have that that conversation can happen. Exactly. And, you know, he was able to say that there are these meetings, we have these regular catch-ups. Can you just take the lead slightly more over the next two months? And I was like, yeah, sure. Of course we can do that. But to give advice on that, I think it's difficult because if you're not in a company that has that openness to discussion It's really difficult. You know, you could go to HR and to raise it to them. But I do think that if fundamentally it's impacting on your personal life, then it is something to raise. One thing I would flag as well is often it can be, if you have children, I think that that can be seen as being a little bit of an easier excuse. So you can say, look, I've got kids and I've got this and I've got that. But if you're single, you just think, well, I'm young, I'm single, I could just keep working and I haven't got an excuse for anything. So I don't think it's about just because you don't have those commitments that you can't really demand or, or, at least suggest that you deserve more for more time for yourself. But again, I think it depends on the organisation. I think, unfortunately, especially if you think in industries which are very sales-driven, the more work you do, the more the better you do. I say in inverted commas because if you're spending more time doing sales work, you're more likely to get more deals. So in a way that the, the 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 culture encourages you to do more. I think it just depends on the environment you're in. But hopefully, if you are feeling stretched, you can raise it to somebody in the organization and they'll listen to you. On the reverse, if you're in the right type of organization, someone should see it. Someone should walk past and say, we had somebody who works, I'd see every day working in the office till 9 p.m. And after a while, I said to their line manager, that person works every day at night 9 p.m., is there a problem? They said, actually, that person likes working late fine if if that if they're okay if they're comfortable with it then then I'm fine with it so I think it's just about communication more than anything else. So lots of communication and maybe setting the expectations early and realizing the
0: culture. So I guess mm. one thing people can do is really in the interview process is sort of dig in and see what kind of culture the company has. Mm. Is it one that fits your sort of priorities? So do you have maybe some questions they should be asking? Maybe about like how open or how the communication style is like. Are they able to bring it to their line manager openly, or is there? Can they ask? Oh, is it expected to
1: work overtime or something like this? The interview process is really difficult because any question, the whole process of an interview suggests that if you ask the question, "What hours am I expected to work to?" it means you don't want to do overtime, which isn't the case. So it's really difficult to ask these questions because you're you're trying to show that you're really dedicated and you're happy to work you know, long hours, but being able to ask the question of look, I'm I'm just curious to know, I'm happy to work late, but generally speaking, what are the office hours? When do people usually come in? When do people um, leave? Because and you can reference previous experiences. Say in, in some organizations I've worked with, to be honest with you, it wasn't clear that during the interview process that we'd have calls with the US or we'd have calls with the UK, which would mean that sometimes I'd have to do late calls and it's just to try to get the understanding get, and to get an understanding of what the expectation is but I think it's a challenge in the interview process to ask that question without you feeling as if it seems as if you don't want to work long hours if you see what I mean so I would try to ask the question and try to find out while saying look I'm happy to work like hours I just want to get an understanding of what's the average or what do people usually do what time do people usually come in
0: do you think it's acceptable for them to reach out to current employees and sort of pick their brains and see what
1: hours are like? It would be something that would be very beneficial if in the interview process, it wasn't just with you know, a line manager or your boss or with HR. If you could speak to somebody who is doing the role and find out from them what it's like, yeah, I think it would be really valuable.
0: What about reaching out to those people on LinkedIn before the interview?
1: Tricky, a little bit tricky. I, although it would be amazing if that, if that could happen. And, but I feel like a lot of organizations might not like it. They might feel like it's invasive. If it was me and, and we were interviewing for you know, whatever role, if the candidate said they wanted to find out more about what it was like to work at Emarsys and not hear me, speaking about it from my position. One, I would love it, but I would then say, okay, I'll find somebody who's in the same role. We had someone who asked it, but it was years ago. But Only one candidate, I think in the last probably like five or six years, he said, I'd like to speak to somebody who's doing the role to find out from them what what the day-to-day is like. And you know, I think live, actually, I think I went outside and asked someone, look, do you have 15 minutes? Can you speak to this candidate? And they did. So yeah, I'd really, I'd encourage asking the question. And if it's it's a good test as well, right? Because if you ask that question in an interview and whoever the hiring manager is says, no, you can only speak to me, then it probably says something as well about the organization, right? Like they don't want you to speak to, to anybody aside from them. So I'd say it's a great question to ask. Oh, wow. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> it shows sort of the bureaucracy mm.
0: or the unsaid rules in the company. Yeah. Um, speaking about tips and advice, do you have any other, maybe more general tips and advice for those looking for jobs, applying interviews, um, applications?
1: With an interview, I think it's really important to remember that it goes both ways. So when I was first looking for a job, when I was, before I joined Amarsis, I was really, really desperate for a job. And at the time I would have taken any job which I think a lot of people get into that situation, I would, I would have probably reminded myself that it goes both ways. So you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. So I think that's really key. Having a mentor is something that it feels like a lot of, I don't know, Silicon Valley tech guys talk about, but I think it's really, really incredibly valuable. Having somebody who is not, and I think it's so important, somebody who is not really that tied to your career who's not who's on your side who isn't your boss who isn't somebody that's a colleague and that person can can be a sounding board can be somebody you speak to you know in the case in the case I had when I was at HP on the grad scheme the mentor I had we used to go for drinks and we'd catch up and he was really really supportive and he was the one that the first person I said to look, actually, I'm not sure if I'm entirely enjoying this. And he was one that encouraged me to look at other options. So having a mentor, I think, is is really valuable. And um, the only other thing I would say was advice that I got on my first day at HP, actually, which was, and it sounds a bit cheesy, but companies move in really fluid ways. So some people, like what goes up must come down. So generally, just be nice to people because the person that is... I don't know, bringing somebody a coffee, if that still even happens anyway, but that person could be your boss or that person could be somebody that you're pitching. So just generally be respectful, be nice to people because you never know what's going to happen. And frankly, the only reason I got the job in Hong Kong, aside from me, I think being capable (laughs) to do the job was I had a relationship with the managing director. I'd worked with him before I did good work for him. He knew that he could trust me. So, and he wasn't my boss. We, he worked in another department. So just trying to make sure that you have positive relationships that no one can really say anything bad about you, I think just means that there's going to be career opportunities for you in the long run. So, but the mentor one is the one I'd really, really highlight. I think it's so useful. And the mentors that I have at the moment, anytime, if there's something that's important that happens or a big decision that I need to make. For example, when I was considering coming back to a master's, I spoke to my mentor and had completely impartial advice, somebody who knows me well, and she was fantastic. You know, she gave me really good advice. So yeah, it's really valuable.
0: A lot of great tips you've shared. Um, one last question mm. on this podcast is, how how should one go about finding a mentor and how do you know it's
1: the right mentor for them? It's a, it's a very difficult question because I had lunch with someone today and, and the advice I gave them was also to find a mentor. And then I spent the last sort of hour after lunch, thinking about how you find a mentor and actually thinking that it'd be fantastic if there was some sort of mentor platform where you could connect. And I think there's a few of them, but I'm not sure how good they are. Honestly, I'm not sure. I don't think it's that easy to find a mentor. I think you can't, I don't think you can, it's difficult through LinkedIn. It's difficult through any of those channels. The only way I think you can find one is if you happen to stumble across one. You, so in my case, the mentor that I had Um, she was a client of mine and when her role changed, she just became somebody that I kept in touch with. So I think it's just about that. If, if you find that there's somebody who you meet, who you think, you know, you not necessarily could aspire to be like, but you, you respect them and you look up to them. I think it's about just really speaking to that person saying, Hey, look, it'd be good to keep in touch. I'd really value your opinion. It just means that you're in that situation whereby you're already meeting different people. I would just say, just to try to look out for it, try to actually see if there's people who you meet or who are connections of connections, and then try to actually create the opportunity. But I would say most importantly, when it comes to finding a mentor, you'd be surprised how open the mentor is to the relationship, how open they are to meeting for a coffee once a month or meeting for lunch. They really enjoy it as well, because for them there is a feeling of giving back. and, And you do learn when you're on the other side of that conversation as the mentor, being able to reflect, you learn and you're thinking about what's going on. So I would say just really look anywhere you can if you see someone and just be quick to act and and really try to develop and make sure that you engage in the relationship.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for all the great advice you gave today. Mm. Thank you.